I'm David Robinson, Principal Data Scientist at Heap, and I think that tomorrow will be uncertain, but that doesn't mean it has to be scary. Welcome, everybody, to the Live from Tomorrow podcast. I am your host, Matt Hooper. Each week, we weave together guest interviews with comedic segments to bring tomorrow vividly to life, offering a bold, humorous perspective on what's next across business, technology, politics, and entertainment. Er, actually, that's what we usually do. We usually talk about what's next, but today I want to talk about why we need to know what's next. Here, now, in mid-November 2020, at the end of a torturously long election, having watched and waited for every single vote to be counted in order to find out just what the heck kind of future awaits us, having spent nine months and counting separated from our loved ones, mired in loss, unsure when we will ever emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, we are more than ready to know what's next. And can you blame us? If we'd like to march forward into certainty, if we'd like to know specifically what the future has in store, this has always been the case for our species, as it is a quintessentially human need. The extreme desire for certainty is not only why we study charts and graphs and place faith in pollsters, it's also why there are psychics and fortune tellers and astrologists. Humans need to know. We need to be certain. It's baked into us from our earliest days back in the Paleolithic era. In fact, we can really learn why it's so important for us to determine what's next if we look back to what's already happened. And try to imagine what it was like for our ancestors to make decisions in times more frightening than our own. Barb, you might want to keep it down with that hammer. The saber-tooths are on the prowl again. Grunt, do you want to do this? Would you like to make a contribution? Because you weren't making fire last night either, so if all you're planning to do is stand around and panic... That is so unfair. That is so unfair. I speared a caribou, Barb. The reason we're even able to eat. Yeah, you speared a caribou, and then I cooked the caribou. Where's that grunt, huh? The brave huntress? Where'd she go? Now it's all, don't go outside, Barb. There's a saber tooth. Are, are you trying to tell me you're not frightened of being attacked? I'm not... I'm saying it's statistically unlikely. <laughs> okay, statistically unlikely. Barb, we've only been standing upright for three generations. I don't think we Homo erectus can claim well, to okay, be... Well, okay, if you're going to be filthy, Grunt, then... Our children have already been killed in a mammoth stampede. Only four of them. And so I just think you might want to show a little more concern for the dangers lurking outside our cave! I am concerned. Okay, but the last I checked, there's only a 10 out of 100 chance we will be attacked by a saber tooth. We don't have numbers yet! Look, honey, just ask Croc, the political correspondent and data analyst in the next cave. Croc, what's the situation looking like on the wall? Well, as you can see, Barb, I've painted some buffalo here with my blood, and I can safely say that they will act as our first line of defense against saber tooths. Also, if you look to the section of the cave wall on my right, this is a herd of mammoths, which have also proven to be a satisfying alternative to our species for a delicious saber-toothed dinner. Additionally, if we turn our attention here and here... Sorry, guys, I just need to cut my finger again to draw some blood so that I can paint for you. There we go. You'll see that we have dots up in the blue-black, which means that the big yellow has said goodbye. It has set. And now, with fire, we will make our way in the dark until the big yellow rises again. Mm -hmm. And Croc, 
Recent polling suggests that if these mammoths leave the area and the big yellow has not risen yet, we are more likely than not to be attacked, correct? The saber-tooths will run out of other dinner options and will be all that's left? That's right, Barb. But there are still a number of other paths to victory for us where the saber-tooths don't attack even while it's still dark out, given the enormous unpopularity of death by saber-tooths among several of the women in our clan, particularly women with back hair and, of course, women with beards. We sent out a number of pollsters to take surveys, and they used their poles, or tall sticks of wood with sharp edges, to point and count all possible threats in the immediate area. Now, if prior attacks are anything to go by, our latest polls suggest that these women will hide their young behind the wall of our largest cave, which was also the first cave to be painted around here, and that should make it harder for Sabretooth to catch our scent. So very important to protect the blue wall. Mm-hmm. And if we lose the protection of the blue wall and the Sabretooths find us? Oh, yes. I see where you're going with this. Well, you know what? Let's have a look at my drawing of the cliff here, off of which we, of course, hurl the bodies of our dead, calling their names as they fall. This is, of course, the Call Edge, right? And as you know, Barb, this is territory familiar to the leaders of our clan, but not to the rest of us. We have a very divided clan. And, and so while many women will be upset if Sabretooths catch our scent, the majority of men who have not been to college welcome a Sabretooth attack. Fascinating. The men in our clan are quite stupid, aren't they, Croc? How oh, that they are, Barb. <laughs> and hey, maybe some of these projections will be off by the time the Big Yellow rises again, but look, I'm the closest thing to an expert we have, and I still eat the things I find in my fur. <laughs> Back to you, Barb and Grunt. Oh, thank you, Croc. And I hope you're getting enough sleep in this stressful, uncertain time. Uh, there. Feeling better, Grunt? Y- yeah, I guess. I get it. A saber-tooth attack is scary. But it's unlikely. Exactly. Now, I'm going to go venture a little out of the cave to gather some more wood for the fire. Barb, are you sure? Grunt, what have we just learned? That any scenario that ends with me getting snatched by the ravenous jaws of a saber-toothed tiger is highly... Ah! Barb! It's got me, Grunt. Save yourself. Barb! No! The pollsters were wrong, Grunt. The pollsters were wrong. Don't tell me it's a sure thing When we're so far from done Spare me speculations If there's a chance that you are wrong We cannot stand the waiting Navigating the unknown The truth is the taking And it will soon be shown Searching for a certain certainty that we are never certain to see. A certain certainty we're not certain to see. A certain certainty we're not certain to see. A certain certainty we're not certain to see. two sides to the coin or so the survey says in spite of probability we're always turning heads and ten times out of ten again and again we want the upper hand to know how it So 
certain certainty Though we are never certain to see A certain certainty we're not certain to see A certain certainty we're not certain to see A certain certainty we're not certain to see Given our essential, all-too-human need for certainty, the role of the data scientist holds a unique place in our society, particularly those moments when they serve as a kind of professional predictor. Coming off the heels of the election, and for some context, the interview you're about to hear was recorded mere hours after Joe Biden was declared the president-elect and Kamala Harris the vice president-elect, we all find ourselves, much as we did back in 2016, wondering just how the heck so many polls got so much so wrong. To get to the bottom of this, and to understand just what sort of role data analysis plays in our lives in order to create a sense of certainty, I did what we always do in this part of the show. I reached out to an expert. All right, everybody. I am so excited to be speaking with my guest today. Uh, he is a data scientist and author, and in a year where we have spent hours and hours as amateur students of, well, data, uh, be it related to COVID or the election, he is the exact person I am most eager to talk to, David Robinson. David, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks very much for having me. You are the principal data scientist at Heap. Uh, what does that mean you get to do all day long? All day I work with data. So um, Heap is a web analytics company. We collect data from for our clients for uh, hundreds of websites, collect data in terms of what visitors do, what they, uh, how they go through steps in a product. And then we, we analyze it, we aggregate it, we show it to, back to them so that they can make useful product decisions. And what that means is I'm developing tools that allow lots of people, lots of different companies to work with their data better. What was the difference between the modeling versus the polls in this election? So the first thing is that I'm not an election expert. I'll say that clearly. I have a background in computational biology and um, a lot of training in statistics, but I don't have the domain expertise in analyzing polling that, say, Nate Silver and Nate Cohen does. That's, what, that's why I trust people like that when I'm, uh, when I'm interested in the forecasting. So a lot of people are angry at the polls, and the polls were off. Modeling allows us to say, what would it mean if the polls are off by particular margins, how likely are they to be off by an amount that will allow Trump to win the election? So models go through historical data and they look at what they make a couple of assumptions and they look at what the distribution of outcomes is. They look at, at so Nate Silver asks throughout the last few elections, how wrong have the polls typically been? Uh, how wrong have they been in each state? How, how do errors in polling correlate across states? He puts these together into a statistical model and allows to get out a probability. And what's really remarkable about probability is, um, is th that I think is a great shift in the last couple of decades. Is I think historically narratives could either be, it's certain to go this way, it's certain to go the other way, or it's 50-50, nobody knows. So there were people in 2016, there was people like Michael Moore in 2016 who said, Trump will win this election because of, of uh, dissatisfied people. Uh, right. Blue, blue collar, uh, non-college educated white men in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. Exactly. So you can tell a story like that. You can tell it at the time. You can tell it after the fact. You can say Trump was destined to win. A lot of people in 2016 said there's no way Trump can win. I think from very early on in his election, a lot of pundits said, uh, said things like, uh, there's said things like, well, we're just waiting for him to crash and burn. Even Nate Silver early in the election was saying, was 
was actually saying that Trump could never win the primary. So people, uh, so there are people telling stories of he was destined to win. There are people telling stories he could never win. And after he won, a lot of people kind of said more like, "Oh well, we have no idea what will happen. Anything can happen." And those, if those are the only three tools you have in your toolbox, the only three stories you can tell, that's leaving so much that statisticians work with every day in terms of uncertainty. Nate Silver comes from a poker playing background. He doesn't go, he doesn't look at a hand and say, I know I'm going to win this. I know I'm going to lose this. I have no idea what's going to happen. He, he would work with probabilities. What is it about our collective human need for certainty that, that makes this all so exciting, but but also so uh, paramount in the way we think about things like elections. I mean, very few things decide the fate of so many people as a U.S. presidential election. And I wonder if that's the direct correlation, right? The emotional stakes. What's your take on it? You know, it's funny you say that, that elections are the one place that people care so much about this data because it affects so many people. Because I think the other example from 2020 is the coronavirus. That was a case where understanding data was critical in a very much a life or death situation. So in March, when the coronavirus started spreading, there was a lot of misunderstanding around exponential growth. People saying, well, only a few hundred people in the U.S. have this. Later in the summer, there was a lot of misunderstanding around positive rates. People said, well, the, um, the number of cases is going up, but that's only because the number of tests is going up. And uh, people like Trump were purposefully ignoring the positivity rate, which was also trending upwards, that, that yes, more people were being, were being tested, but the fraction of them that would be they were testing positive was going up as well. So I think that there's another case where it was a life or death situation for people to understand data and another situation where, where there was a lot of kind of armchair interest in the topic. I think that we have a lot to learn from professional statisticians like Nate Silver and Nate Cohen, but there's a lot that we can understand. We shouldn't assume, well, it's something we just have to listen to what other people say. There's a lot that we can we can start to get a feel for, okay, what does it mean that there's a 28% chance that Trump will win this election? What does it mean there's a 10% chance that Trump will win this election? How, quote, worried should we be? It's something that I think um, that's much more, that's, that's something that Nate Silver has, I think, taught a lot of the country in a way that he would never, he doesn't need to teach people how his model works, doesn't need to teach people how to write that code. But we've, but a lot of us have started to really understand here's, here's how worried we should be about different probabilities. Where is the art and where is the science in data science? I think it's a really great question. In my day-to-day work, I can take scientific formulas that I learned during my PhD and apply them to problems. The same way that a pollster can take a, um, uh, a poll of a thousand people and say, I think this is the margin of error. These are tools that have been built over uh, more than a century by mathematicians and statisticians. And there's a lot of science to that. The art of turning a problem that you're interested in into a rigorous scientific model, there's really a lot of, of judgment and experience that goes into that. I, I think one of the reasons that Nate Silver is very good at what he does is he's done this in several elections. He's understood what he what he expected and turned out not to work so well. He's um, from even experiencing things like poker. He's he has a good sense for for uh, how likely or unlikely outcomes, and he's been good at taking these real world problems and turning them into math. I think a really cool example is. This year, people said, this election is very different. There's so much news this year. There's the virus. There's, uh, there's, there's protests about racial resentment. And there's all this news. Isn't that going to change the election? 
So what he did is he tried quantifying the amount of news in each election year, looking at the number of banner headlines in the New York Times. So he took this thing that people said, you can't possibly quantify that, and he worked to fit in into his model. I think afterwards he's going to say, okay, did that help the model? Did it hurt it? Uh, Are there better ways that he could have approached it? But I think that's where the art comes in. And data scientists uh, at at our work, we do this exact thing. We talk to someone, we talk to a product manager, or we talk to a, a VP of sales. We talk about the things that they're uncertain about. And then we figure out how can we take the data that we have, take the questions that, that were being asked, and find the scientific model that connects them. As a data scientist and a data professional, what do you make of so many amateurs getting into the space? I uh, Some people would say, oh, it's bad that amateurs are getting really into data, getting really into trying to understand it themselves, trying to say, here's what this predict, here's what this means. But I think it's actually a really, I think it's really exciting that more people are, are starting to understand um, data. And let's actually separate, which is I'd separate caring about data from caring about probabilistic modeling. I think the great revolution is not, we, you, we never used to look at data and now we do. The really exciting change is that people used to take data and tell whatever story they wanted with it. So someone could have looked at, uh, someone could have looked at 2016 and said, well, Trump could never win. He says all these horrible things. America's gonna reject him and look, he's down in the polls. It took probabilistic modeling to say, yes, he's down in the polls, but not by a lot, only by about this, by the by th- about three points that is the average margin that uh, that the polls are off by in election. So you actually get a situation where the polls were about as wrong in 2016 as they were, were in 2012. But in 2016, nobody thought about that because in 2012 it just it hadn't made a difference to the outcome. Obama just won by a larger margin than had been expected. So it took people like Nate Silver and it took. Uh, actually doing probabilistic modeling on the data to understand what the actual risk of a Trump win was. And I think we see something similar in the in the 2020 election where there was a um where there were a couple stories. One story was the uh, was well Biden is winning by so much America is resoundingly going to reject him. Another story is Trump pulled off a, a victory in 2016, he's going to do it again. It took probabilistic modeling to say a polling error might happen again, but even if it's about the same size as the one in 2016, it won't be enough for Trump to win. And coming in a couple of days after the election, that's starting to look like a very, that was a very good, a very useful story. The other thing about what you mentioned of amateurs getting involved in data, something that I'd really like to see is more people learning to use tools that work with data themselves. So tools I use are, um, there's very popular programming languages like Python. And a lot of these tools can be used by people that have a little bit of technical understanding and some um, sense around what makes useful visualizations. I've seen some really cool uh, amateur, uh, this week I've seen a lot of really interesting amateur visualizations of here's how the election is going in this state, here's what we can learn uh, from these um, from these results in these counties. I think there's some danger in terms of amateurs working with data themselves. There's always possibility they could draw spurious conclusions. But I think there's a lot more to be gained in terms of developing kind of citizen data scientists, developing these um, these skills a little bit more broadly, uh, just, just as, as we, we would hope that uh, participants in a democracy understand civics or understand... Um, uh, have like I said, literacy, but there's some really some numeracy and some ability to work, to work with data themselves. I really, I, I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see more and more people working with code and working with data directly. 
I really love a specific line of David's from our interview where he sort of defined the core of his work. Take the data that we have, take the questions that were being asked, and find the scientific model that connects them. But what happens when we infer our own story from that model? As David points out, we've never had to make so much sense of so much news, so much data. While probabilistic modeling certainly makes it a whole lot harder to just tell whatever story we want from data, have you met a human being? We are storytellers, highly imaginative and anxious creatures. Uncertainty scares us. (laughs) I truly love David's idea that data can become a tool we can all use as a means of civic engagement, but I can also see a future where we're still really afraid of uncertainty or we might even turn that fear into a form of entertainment. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of What the Hell is Gonna Happen, the only game show that lets you find out your future, so long as you guess right. I'm your host, Jess Bloosh. Now, let's meet our contestants. My name is Hank Grape, and I'm from Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I'm afraid of flying, have to travel to my sister's wedding in Toronto next week, and I want to know what the hell is going to happen. Ooh, all right, Hank. Next contestant. My name is Vivica Wilson, and I'm from Tallahassee, FLA. (laughs) I'm scared of being met with silence when I tell my boyfriend I love him. And next month is our one-year anniversary, so I want to know, y'all, what the hell is going to happen? Woof. And uh, last but not least. My name is Matt Hooper, and I'm from New York City, New York. I've uh, got this pain in my side, and it's it's really starting to freak me out. Plus, I've got this, I mean, I don't want to overshare, but I've also had some scary experiences in the bathroom lately, and I just, like, I really need to know what the hell is going to happen. Well, as ever, all our guests are required to guess correctly about each other. They've all spent an hour together before the show learning about one another, putting their attention spans to the test in our existentially sad modern moment, when we are all endlessly distracted and when making sense of information has become virtually impossible. Are you ready, contestants? What? Huh? Sorry, I was texting. Ready, Jess. Then let's get this party started, shall we? You all know the rules. The first to buzz and guess the answer correctly will be rewarded with points that add up to the purchasing of knowledge about your future. The very same future about which you are all curious and which inspires tremendous fear in each of you. Will Hank make it to Toronto safely? Will Vivica's boyfriend tell her that he loves her? And what's going on with Matt's... Uh, Well, okay. Our first round is regret, and our categories are... When I knew it was all doomed. Places I wish I'd traveled to. And what would it have been like to be with them instead? Vivica, we'll start with you. Okay, I choose places I wish I'd traveled to, Jess. Sounds good. That's places I wish I'd traveled to for the first 100 points of the game. And the question is, why did Hank's mother cry at her 50th wedding anniversary when shown a photograph? of the Eiffel Tower. Oh, well, that's easy, because 50 years is a long time, and people cry when they realize they're old. Boo! Death stings, right? Am I right, y'all? Come on. Y'all hear it? Nope. You are clearly way too easily distracted by the endless deluge of noise coming from the internet, the limitless data that bombards us all, and as a result, simply could not pay attention when Hank spoke to you. Yes, Hank? Because my mom always wanted to wear a beret, but never could afford one. Nope. 
Hank, you are also evidently unable to pay attention or make sense of the world around you. And now you've gotten the answer wrong, even though it pertains to your own life. Shocking. Shocking and embarrassing. Yes, Matt. Because Hank's mother never got to go to Paris, and she dreamed of visiting since she was a child. Yes, that's correct. 100 points to Matt. This means that it's your turn to select the next category, Matt. Okay, we're still in the regret round. Uh, I'll do when I knew it was all doomed. You betcha. When I knew it was all doomed, now for 300 points. And the question is, in which year did Vivica fail her final trigonometry exam, thus setting her up for a life of low expectations, lower self-esteem, and an awful need for validation from romantic partners? Oh, looks like you need to be a little quicker on the trigger there, Matt. Even though you had control, Hank beat you to it. Maybe it has something to do with that mysterious pain in your side. Who knows? What? What do you think, Hank? 1924. Nope. Love the enthusiasm, but that makes very little sense, Hank. That would make Vivica over a century old when she is clearly in her 20s. (laughs) Well, it was worth a shot. (laughs) Was it? Yes, Vivica. 22. Woo! My lucky number, y'all. 22? As in the year 22? Wow. Wow, that is a, that's a dumb answer. The mind of yet another adult turned to mush after a life spent engulfed in digital ephemera. Yes, Matt. 2015. That's when Vivica failed her final trigonometry exam. She was a junior in high school. She told us literally a half hour ago before we started the game. Well, that's another 300 points for Matt, placing him firmly in the lead with 400 points, while Hank and Vivica each still have zero. Woohoo! Zero points! Zero points! Matt, it is once again your turn to select the category. Uh, Are you all right? Um, yeah, it's this pain. I mean, if this is... Uh, I think it's my colon. We're still in regret, Matt. Yeah, okay, fine. Uh, what's left? Let's do what would it have been like to be with them instead? I love it. We are leveling up, folks. This one is for a whopping 1,000 points. And if Matt wins it, he moves on to the next round. The question is... What about that girl you met in the elevator about midway through your and Sally's relationship? She seemed cute and was kind of into you. What the hell, Matt? Oh, I know it. Who is Rebecca? No, I am afraid that is incorrect, Hank. Not only is this not Jeopardy, but I don't know who Rebecca is. Shucks, neither do I. Yes, Vivica. 22. My lucky number, y'all. Let's go. That's just... Okay, I'll pray for you, Vivica. I will pray for you. Matt? I'm a happily married man. I have no regrets. Boom, that's the answer. Yes, it is. Congratulations, Matt. That means you are moving on to the next round. Hank and Vivica, thank you for playing. Wait, Jess, this pain, it's sort of overwhelming. Stick around, folks, after the commercial. I think I need to see a doctor. Or at least let's speed this up so you can tell me what the hell is going to happen. Yep, just hang on, Matt. Four more rounds and then you'll know. I mean, hopefully. If you win. Oh, no. Don't go away. We'll be right back. I need certainty. Make this stop right here on What the Hell is Gonna Happen? I want to be clear. I think this is a terrible idea for a game show. 
I also am more aligned with what David Robinson shared in our interview than not. I truly believe that we have it in us collectively. I'm talking about all of us humans to make smart, informed decisions using data, but to not become over-reliant on data, to acknowledge the difficulty of uncertainty, but to make all decisions with courage. This is a show that examines a wide variety of possible futures, of possible tomorrows. And while some futures look brighter than others, because none of them have been decided yet, it is as probable that we're facing one kind of future as we are another. And so I try to err on the side of optimism. Because there is one thing that is always, always true, 100% of the time. The sun will always rise, and there always will be a tomorrow. David Robinson, I'd like to ask you now the question that we ask each guest at the end of every episode. What are two tips you have for tomorrow? First is that you, if you have some technical skills or interest, learn to work with data yourself. So learn a programming language like R or Python that allows you to download a data set, create visualizations, apply statistical methods. Uh, there's, there's something very empowering about when you see something on the news about here's how coronavirus cha- uh, is changing across states, here's the latest numbers out of Nevada. There's something very empowering about getting to download the data and work with it yourself. My second tip is that I think the time for prediction markets is coming. As barriers to entry prediction markets change, as the, the fees for adding money and removing it, as liquidity improves and it is less likely to be driven by a few people that have political motivations, I think that they're going to start to become one of our best ways of forecasting uncertainty to say how likely we think something is, um, is going to happen. I think this isn't quite yet the year for prediction markets, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is the decade for them. Okay, folks, that's our show. I want to thank our guest, David Robinson, our cast, Max Azule, Kelly Quinn, Anne Veal, and Matthew Walters-Bowens. The song in this episode is entitled Certainty, and it was written by Mark Levy, performed by Mark Levy and Trevor Brown, and mixed by Ben Easton. Our original score was composed by Ben Easton. I am your writer and host, Matt Hooper, and I want to thank all of you for listening. Catch you next week. As ever, thanks, folks.